Welcome to Third Flatiron's latest fantasy podcast from Boulder, Colorado. It's about the vengeful effects of a great wrong, brought about by a dark chapter in the legends of King Arthur. It's called Oh Shades My Woe by Eric J. Guignard. Eric is a lifelong resident of Southern California, where he's a technical writer and college professor. His interests include a terrarium full of beetles, woodworking, and genealogy. To find out more about Eric's work, see the interview posted along with this podcast and visit his website at ericjguignard.com. For more podcasts from Third Flatiron, check out our website at thirdflatiron.com and subscribe to our feed. Third Flatiron is privileged to podcast this harrowing tale, which first appeared in our fall-winter anthology, Ain't Superstitious. And now, here's O Shades, My Woe, read by Russ Rue. O Shades, My Woe, by Eric J. Guignard. The night wanes darker in absence of gods, darker still in light of ill penance. It is a darkness tinged with enchantment, with sorcery, a darkness men must flee should any regard linger for the continuance of their life, the preservation of their soul. I flee no more. The night is dark, yet I see things in it, things that move, that approach. For black is the sky, though mists of amethyst slither across, hiding, then revealing, occasional diamond-shaped stars, glimpses of a moon so full its bloated belly should burst, and the sad, squinty-eyed faces of pale babes that bob upon unseen waves. The infants mule with the despair of abandoned kittens, their soft, sweet notes as plaintive as those from a shepherd's curved gem's horn. They come for me, and I know upon their waves I am soon to be taken. I am a soldier in King Arthur's army, a man at arms crusading under the red dragon of his banner. I fought with Arthur at the fortress of Leo de Grand, where ten thousand men died in battle and I travel in his retinue to far-off realms where golden unicorns rule and castles are built of glass. I, who was born the same year as Arthur, was even present the day in Westminster when he, a boy, pulled the heir's sword from its stone-mounted anvil. Oh, how I dreamt it to be me raising that ancient blade in exaltation! How I thought of fate's vagaries, and that I could have been anything! but I contented myself, at least, to have witnessed such wonder. And when we came of age, and Arthur marched to campaign against Lot Lutoc and his eleven armies, I joined, pledging my fealty forever to the boy king. And such victories were ours to be had. Death's cold hand but grazed our warriors, whilst it sought our enemies like a beggar scrabbling upon lost coins. Arthur's banners raised on every defeated field high above the slain. His trumpeters called for victory so frequently that their lungs swelled and voices broke. Arthur's song was grand, his daring renowned. And Arthur was mighty. Arthur was fair. Arthur was triumphant and wise and beloved by all of Britannia, a king who kept his peoples unknown to the strifes our land suffered whilst leaderless. Famine, disease, sedition, poverty, it is Arthur we praise for their eradication. It is Arthur we worship as heir divine. It's true, he kills many, many men, but Arthur is a warrior. It is expected to slay thy enemy, 
It is also true he fornicates with lasses in every town, but this too is expected. Tales of Arthur's lusts are heralded as exultantly as the sonnets of his battles. When one speaks of our king's conquests, damsels and dragons may be commutable, and because of his loins unrestraint, it was whispered he took to bed his own half-sister, Morgays. I knew not the veracity of such musings. Hearsay is as prevalent as the nits slumbering in our wool, but one does not discount idle reports either, as disquieting acts have ways to make themselves known, and not even Merlin can always shroud their secrets. Children in the shadows, talking horses, soothsayers, there's always someone, some thing, that is aware of wrongdoing. There are times even blades of grass pass along, through rustles, the implications of looming peril. It takes only tuned ears to hear their message. My raven-haired wife, Rosha, dabbles in dark magic herself, though few would suspect such a thing and she expressed those implications would have dire effects far-reaching even to us, though when or how she could not presage. I worried not long at her augury, for certain events were soon dragged woefully from the mucus pits whence they stood. May Day That is when the rustles of grass grew loudest, and thereafter did Rosha glimpse what Merlin saw in his flames, that Arthur had made child with Morgays. Wicked she who bore most terrible enmity toward our beloved King Arthur. Wicked she who poisoned Arthur's dreams and his seed before taking flight. Merlin foretold that this son of Arthur would himself begin the fall of Camelot, and at any cost the infant must be found. The child was born on May Day, Merlin ciphered, but the location was not known. As with all sorcerous ways, only certain shadows may be seen and not others. King Arthur ordered all boys thus born that year on the first of May be brought before him. Mothers and fathers rejoiced that their sons were perhaps significant and willingly delivered their children to Arthur for blessing in providence of some great destiny foretold. It was destiny indeed foretold, yet alas, not in fortuity. So too were their parents who mistrusted the king's decree, regardless of his trumpeted rectitude and sought to hide their such-born sons. But Merlin's finger found them all. One by one, we soldiers were pointed to hiding nooks beneath straw-filled beds, or in small chests, or behind false walls, mothers angry with fright and tears as we tore babes from their homes. No reason was given them, no comfort provided, no word spoke further of the matter. The May Day-born sons of farmers, merchants, nobles, and beggars alike were taken and set to nurse at a secretive hoff of clay floors and low ceiling. There they remained until decided upon. Rosha, through her sight, told me the child Merlin and Arthur sought had been collected, though they could not determine which of the infants he was. And so, two nights passed till I found myself on a secret mission. On Arthur's order, I and a dozen others, led by the knight Angustulus, were ordered to the Hof to retrieve those babes. Though weather had long been fair, the night turned unaccountably stormy, and the infants cried loud at our arrival, whether from gale or nascent foreboding I cannot say. The soldier, Havice, drove a covered wood cart, and his normally taciturn face evinced more dread than I've seen him show in a hundred of battles. We took the babes and we loaded them in stacks like fleshy logs, 
and at this even mighty Simon trembled. The cart filled, thirty, forty, I dare not count for fear of weeping. The babies punched and kicked the air with tiny limbs and wailed in tongues none but their own mothers might cipher, calling for these very same mothers who were absent, and the children knowing not why. Angusilus gave the command, and we departed thence for the seashore. Perhaps more enchantments filled the air as we encountered no one on that midnight road. Tis a strange thing, is it not, that the cries of so many infants streaming across the countryside like wafting fumes should not draw the inquiry of a righteous man? But twas true. Though if Merlin wove a spell of secrecy o'er us, why, I ask, could he not have silenced those May babes? Or perhaps many did hear the wails, but, sensing the malevolence of our charge, chose rightly to hide in the deepest of cellars or neath the thickest of blankets, praying such ill omens never to find them. For evil such as this must always leave a linger, a residue of char and hideous smoke. After some hours we reached a spit none could name that stabbed out into the great frothing ocean. A small ship there awaited us, a flat-bottomed cog with single mast. Its sail was set. There was no rudder. Jeremiah, the noted jouster, whispered desperately for forgiveness even as he took the first of the infants and laid him within the ship. If cries were knives, we should all have been sliced asunder by the child's desperate wails, pleading in dribble-specked bleats. We worked with the haste of furies stacking the others into the boat. The wind howled malisons upon us, and hastening rain drove nettles into our eyes and hands, but still we obliged our oaths of duty to Arthur. For if our king decrees this for the good of the realm, then it must be so, regardless of its despicability. And when its terrible cargo made ready, Ranulf pushed the ship into the angry, storming sea. Like mewlings of terrified kittens thrown out and drowning in a well, so too were the babe's cries, Arthur's cursed son among them, drowning under the waves of the great brine. The boat sped away, caught by the wind, and gray crests rose up like mountain slabs and fell over its bow, and the mewling worsened. Our orders completed, we fled. The cries fell silent as we galloped away, and I pledged to never bethink upon those events again, believing that for the greater good the realm had been saved. And so it was until the dreams. As when I lay in bed aside my wife and amongst the living, the dead infants haunted me. They promised what awaits, what befalls the butchers of bairns, and I believed all. For the next month, on its first day, Angusilus the knight vanished from his manor. All of court wondered at his disappearance, yet no trace of him could be found. Even Merlin appeared to inquire, though he made public no venture. When his eyes met mine, he looked away. The following month, two on its first, Another soldier was taken, Gaffer. I'd served with Gaffer at the Battle of Bedegrain and at the rout of Gwyn Cullin, and no fiercer a warrior may be found. Yet by dawn he was gone, as if a flounder snatched suddenly away by an unsparing fisherman's net. Month by month it was so for Peregrine, and then Ranulf, and thereafter Havice, each taken by an incremental turn of our Julian calendar.
Even Jeremiah was soon lost. He who's pleased that night by the sea for forgiveness surely fell upon ears as unheeding as those who heard the crying babes. Rosha toiled to ward off this strange bane. She wove spells like golden thread upon a loom of safeguard, and she sought counsel with the ageless crones underground, chanted songs of Babel in the glades, pricked her finger to mine, even while a child of our own coupling took seed in her belly and ripened through the season. And still Rosha wove more, suffering malaise and bemoaning the limitations of her ensorcelled prowess. She was not Merlin, after all, nor Morgana, nor Nimue, nor even Morgaze, the least, but cruelest of them all. But finally, Rosha swore, her magic was enough to shield me, its continuance told by the beating of her heart. And at the next month's start, upon a waning moon's night, Simon was vanished. After two fortnights, Theophilus followed, and so then Malcolin. The soldiers were taken, as passed the months, an unremitting progress of time that leads all to its terminus, soon to be gone, gone, gone. After eleven months, eleven men went missing by unknown cause, and by the twelfth, only I and one more remained from that night of horror. I rode to this last soldier, Kenward, and we sought Merlin for help, but he would not hear us. We begged Arthur's audience, but he would not see us. It was as if another spell of secrecy was cast, and we were forgot by those we once served. And as a new month came, I alone stood by Kenward's side for whatever might show. Kenward, who was swarthy and hale, once had hair as raven as my wife's, but of late it turned ashen and listless, much as the man himself. We waited by torch in his estate, and at the bell's midnight toll they came. Ne'er able to crawl, they showed atop the garden wall like cherub-faced goblins. They appeared when I glanced away, and the sound was of foul mewling. They were the babes we had drowned, surging to us upon an invisible current, their movements in fleeting tumbles as if tossed to and fro amidst churning waves. The May Day babes were naked and bloated with brine, skin like blue sponges that hold all they can and ooze excess. Their cries spoke not of vengeance, but still of fright, of pain and despair. As that tide washed closer and closer, I swung my sword mercifully, cleaving the first child's head from its wriggling body. But its sobs did not stop, the sound instead turning only hollow, as if blowing through a chafe of wheat, even as the child's head flowed nearer, vanishing, then emerging, dipping and surfacing beneath unseen waves. Kenward babbled ungodly oaths while cutting through one infant, then another. Suddenly he shrieked at being touched by something most frigid, causing him to abandon wits and flee. At that, the waves broke over him while skirting me and the dead children carried Kenward to fathoms from which there is no return. By morn, I returned home alone and all distance from me but my wife, dearest Rosha, whose mother's mother's mother danced by night in the misty bosk of the Fay, And days fell away, sloughed off skin for tomorrows, and I thought less of myself and more of my beloved, preparing to give birth that following month. And a horrible voice filled my head. Would my fealty have remained so resolute if our own sire were born that day of May? And too soon the thirteenth month commenced, 
Rosha stayed with me all night working at her spells. Though I swore to smell a waft of sea salt and cold rot, the dead babes did not come. By my beloved, it worked. Rosha had saved me, and I revered her the more, and we spoke in hope for the constancy of my stayed time. It is Arthur and Merlin who are the villains, she told me. As oath required, I only carried out their orders, but they should be held most accountable. Her sight showed a day not far distant that Arthur and Merlin will perish, their fall begat by a mayday babe, the cursed son of Arthur himself, who by wonder survived that ocean storm while the other innocent children perished. Theirs will be tragedies all in which no peace is ever found. Some days passed, each a joy in itself, as worries of the drowned babes lessened, while hopes for our own family thrived. And soon that day of celebration arrived, for my wife's belly set to burst and a midwife called for. Tis a most painful labor, I understand, for any woman to give birth, and I did all I could to comfort Rosha whilst in her throes. My wife's cries were brave at first, but after many hours they turned savage and racking. Her hand gripped mine with the strength of a manticore, and she writhed as her innards clenched and eased and clenched again. The water broke from between her legs, gushing to the ground, and I unexpectedly thought of stormy ocean waves. Rosha moaned and flailed from her back, and I thought of those babes kicking the air with tiny limbs, squirming so helpless and wretched. A soft cry rose, a bleeding wail from the darkness of her womanhood, even for the crest of the infant's head did show. The midwife's face puzzled. A second cry joined, frightened mewling from a great distance but drawing near. The midwife's face remade to concern, and by the third crying voice, the fourth, the chorus she'd taken to frenzy. I know not why we hadn't considered some wickedness, not braced for an attempt, not thought for this, but that they'd made a way to me. The first dead babe spewed from Rosha, and she shrieked, for there were more passing through, many more, splitting her womb asunder in terrible rolling waves. Bits of her splattered my tunic, precious lumps colored as wet rust and bitter wine, and incurably ravaged. Rosha's eyes found mine for a trice, then turned up, white, and she convulsed again, splitting at the seams like a burlap sack that bears too many potatoes. The children's number grew. Thirty. Forty. I dared not count, for all was in crashing fury, lunacy, screams, and chaos. Rosha's magic was enough to shield me, its continuance told by the beating of her heart. And at that beating cessation the babes were unfettered. My dearest had wove so busily for me, thinking not of herself, thinking not she be menaced, and perhaps was true, but that she'd interfered with reparations of the damned. Somewhere else the midwife had fallen. Fainted? Taken? I did not know, and I did not probe, for if I looked back further I would turn unhinged. I fled outside. Above stayed a moon so swelled its luster was like filaments sneaking down through the sky, and I reached for mercy to take hold and be risen away, but at those hopes its clinkant light thus dimmed. The night turned too dark, and the crashing waves of dead babes surged from behind, and I would flee no more. Hence, here I wait, O shades, knowing my words run low, I resign my fate, for who can escape the ocean that knows no shore? And at the last I cry this grief for you, Mine sad notes as those whom fall lost, 
for such is life that we are all babes cast adrift in the great sea of nothingness, wailing for life amongst turbulent waves until drowning beneath it all. Thanks for listening to this podcast from thirdflatiron.com. Original music by Disco Volante. Sound production was by Andrew Cairns.